Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital editor. But enough about me. There's this film festival going on in France right now. For this episode, Nick Rapold, editor of Film Comment, was joined by Amy Taubin, a contributing editor to Film Comment and Art Forum. Jonathan Romney, uh, I write the Film of the Week column in Film Comment. Nicholas Elliott, I'm the New York correspondent for KUG Cinema. And Jordan Kronk, I'm a uh, critic and programmer based in LA, and I'm covering the festival for uh, Film Comment. To discuss the films they've seen thus far, including Ruben Oslin's The Square, Michael Haneke's Happy End, Agnes Varda's and JR's Visages Villages, and many, many more. Please excuse the quality of the recording, which reflects the fast-paced social atmosphere of the festival. I think it's always helpful to say at this point what films we've been able to see and what we haven't been able to see. Obviously, we've seen Okja, Wonderstruck, and The Square are some of them we have seen, but we haven't seen, I don't know, for example, what we a big anticipated film that we haven't seen. Well, The Good, good Times, The Safdie Brothers. The Safdie Brothers. And, uh, I've seen yeah. The Safdie Brothers. Okay. <laughs> don't give anything away, please. Sure. Well, we yeah, haven't seen yeah. a Sophia Coppola film. Because the Beguile is another anticipator one we haven't seen. Um, a Polanski film will screen. <laughs> it will on, on Saturday morning. Yeah, on Saturday morning. Anyone have any anything they want to start off with? Well, maybe it's saying... It's worth saying it, it, it's actually a little harder to see things this year than it really is because the queuing situation is crazy. I mean, you know, it's understandable that they've really ramped up the uh, security, but now going to see a film here is like going through an airport. And, uh, you know, it just somehow it adds a kind of intense friction to uh, the festival. There have been all kinds of delays and queues and so, you know, I think people are kind of grinding their teeth a bit more than usual. Missing films, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I've missed a couple. There's also a mystery for me in the fact that given that these days it's practically impossible for anyone to earn a living writing about cinema and loads of people have lost their jobs and loads of people simply aren't being paid to come here anymore. How is it that there seem to be so many more press than ever? I just don't quite understand, unless everyone who's doing it, it you know, is independently wealthy. But it's bizarre, you know, I mean, those queues are incredibly, they're crammed. Well, I've noticed as far as the, I'm blue, so I'm in the, not quite the proletariat, I'm in the middle range, but I've noticed that a lot of people around me a lot of the French ones are online bloggers and so on, so presumably they don't make money from writing about film or very little money, but it's very much in... I mean, it seems very natural in France that when you're into film, you start very young, you know, even 17, 18, going to Cannes every year. You find a way, you find a way to get the accreditation, you sleep with 10 other people in an apartment. I think especially that like, might be what's still making the ranks so thick. Yeah, I, I can't figure it out either. Also, I can't figure out who are the, the gods now, the people with white passes. I, I, there's still a whole bunch of them, but I don't know. I don't like to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Does, I don't know who they are. I think the gods are still the same. The it's gods are the people who write for dailies, yeah. who, write for, who have to turn their copy around immediately. Yeah. And they're really pretty good about that as being a priority. Mm-hmm. And then, they don't even have, I mean, John Powers doesn't even have a white pass anymore. Vogue used to be absolute. The Village Voice used to be absolute. That's not the case anymore. 
Yeah. It, it's purely about what your job is. Yeah, which necessarily I think tilts it towards internet publications more than print. Mm -hmm. yeah. So makes sense. Interesting shift that happens. But you, you should have a white pass, right? I mean, you're filing every day. Or you, you have a you a dot. It's dot. pretty good. Which is, you know, <laughs> you're doing all it right. Helps. But funny, I've noticed that you know even people with very veteran journalists right up front with a pink dot, you know, in you know right crushed up against the barriers, a full hour ahead of them opening the doors. So I'm thinking about this is really you know we are all kind of required to be pretty hardcore here in our dedication to seeing things. Something that's odd is that they're having the other side, like uh, high-ranking market people and special protocol passes are now in press screenings. I mean, they've collapsed the screenings, which is why even people with pink dots are nervous about getting in. Which is strange, because I'd assume there'd be enough market screenings to go around for things. But I guess some things aren't yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty odd. And part of that, I think, is the security, that they don't want to pay the security for that uh, many screenings uh, to go into that's, all that's those theaters. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. And they keep programming uh, at least one or two uh, competition films in the smaller theaters, which doesn't help right. people that don't Not at all. But, mm -hmm. for example, right. Hong Sang Soo, uh, the competition film I just saw, because I wouldn't have had a chance to see it earlier. So, yeah. But you got into that one, right? The one right now, yeah. yeah. Which was a, the actual like premiere public slash uh, yeah. press screen. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, that's that's the thing. The priorities then that they, they are setting about about the lineup ahead of time. You know, I mean, Hong Sang Soo has two films, but you know, neither of them are like in a big morning slot. Well, they've learned by experience. He has one every year, and no one goes to it. <laughs> I guess so. That's the horrible yeah. truth. But I'll be there. For the next 20 through 30 films. Well, I've just missed these two. I but I mean, these you two. always I know the, that there's going to be another one around the corner. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Yeah. And the New York Film Festival, for those of us in New York, will help us see them. It's true. Perhaps. Perhaps. We hope. We, we do hope. not know that. I don't, we don't know, but we hope. You may hope. <laughs> well, there was the other one from Berlin, too, so... Oh, that's true. That's right. I'm three behind at the moment. Yeah, and he's supposedly making out of this fall, so who knows what will happen. Well, generally, have people been disappointed, underwhelmed, overwhelmed, disappointed? Angered. 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 I've seen quite a few films that I was upset by. Yeah. Um, Not in a good in way. way. Different ways. I mean, there's the typical festival fair cinema of cruelty and uh, mastery, which I actually haven't seen the Michael Haneke film, but many of these filmmakers are his descendants, so... Um, Jupiter's Moon, whose Hungarian director's name I never quite get right, so maybe can, someone can help me. Mandruska. That was one I strongly disliked. Yeah, but that was yeah. just a bad film. I mean, <laughs> um, sure, I guess I... There's two things there. Maybe, you know, um, we've just been discussing how it's difficult to get into the screening. So when you go to great effort and expend a lot of time right. to see something, Maybe your fuse is a little shorter, but the other thing is that Jupiter's Moon deals with uh, very important issues. You know, migrants coming into Europe, the situation in Hungary, and by extension in Europe today. And I tend to find that when subjects such as those are dealt with in a way that 
I think actually belittles them and ultimately at most may serve to try to get the director a job directing a Bourne sequel. I find it offensive and it makes me angry. I don't think that that's what's going on in that film at all. I mean, that film is exactly the same film as a film I really like of his, which is no one else does, but I do, White God. Um, I can bear the, the story of... I can bear the Spartacus story when it's dogs, miracles and dogs. When it's miracles and humans, I can't bear it. There are a lot of Spartacus stories here. I mean, Okja is a Spartacus story at the end. Um, I like Okja a lot, uh, but it is a resistance story. He's just a heavy-handed filmmaker. I mean, and who directs incredible chase sequences, which I don't take away from him for a second, and I don't think he wants a born uh, uh, saga. He loves that city, and he loves to set up chases through that city. Uh, and he's done it in three films. Yeah, I think he's a very, very heavy-handed director. Even White God, which I think is a better film, and I recognize some great things about it. The second, well, not the second, but within the first sequence of that film, I could tell that this was a filmmaker that I was going to be disappointed with. He came up with an incredible idea, and he pulled off being able to do it, which is to make hundreds of dogs run through the streets of Budapest. It's amazing. But he gives us that image, which is an incredible image, and then within, let's say, two minutes, he bombards us with, I think it was symphonic music, I don't remember. I just remembered that he had so little confidence in us being able to appreciate the marvel of what he was putting before our eyes that I immediately realized, okay, it's this kind of filmmaker who's just going to try to... Making an offer with dogs, and I have no problem with that. that. But why are we talking about films we don't like? So what is this new film about, though? True. Okay, fine. Favorite favorite films We have very little time. Well, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, well, since you mentioned Hanukkah and the disciples of Hanukkah, I have to say I was very disappointed with this year's Hanukkah film, which somehow drifted past me. I, I found that I couldn't really connect with what it was doing at all. I, I didn't really engage me. Um, and yet the difference with it is that in a very peculiar way, it felt like Hanukkah's first comedy. It may not be a comedy in the way that any of us recognise, but it's all relative. So in relative terms is Hanukkah's first comedy. But the person who actually, to me, felt as if he'd made a Hanukkah-style comedy, if there was such a thing as a Hanukkah comedy, a real one, uh, film which most impressed me in competition, and there were very few, have been very few so far, um, is The Square by Ruben Ostlund, which made me feel every bit as uncomfortable as Hanukkah's films do. Um, I think it's witty, it's very controlled, it's taking some, you know, certain kind of cultural commonplaces uh, and sort of pushing them a bit further. Um, you know, some of the jokes about modern art and art speak, gallery speak. Uh, you can say, yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's just that kind of, you know, joking about Carl Andre all over again. But actually, there's something really distinctive about it and a film about the uh, gallery director whose kind of bubble of the world breaks down following one transgression and full step after another. And I just found it delightfully uncomfortable. Uh, but I also found it really had something to say about 
you know, all the things we know about residents of the culture zone that we're all in, living in a certain kind of bubble with regard to the outside world. And, you know, in a way, there's no better place than to see that than in Cannes. Well, there is a great comedy here about that bubble, and that's Claire Denis' film. Claire, Claire Denis, uh, let the terribly titled in English, <laughs> the worst English possible title, <laughs> Let the Sunshine In. Ouch. Which is how they've translated... Uh, Le Soleil interior, which is set in an art and money milieu, uh, in the kind of boho of Paris, and involves a woman of a certain age who has decided to put her blinders on and go for great love at any cost, and that's all she's interested in. And it is a great performance by Julia Binoche yeah. and a great performance, I think a great walking of that line of comedy and deadly seriousness. And for me, this film, which is kind of jumping what I'm going to write or what I have written, is a very narrowly cast rules of the game because it is a comedy of manners about people who are holding on to a way of life and making themselves oblivious that right around the corner is the end of that, the possibility of their life. So as the Second World War was to lose the game, you know, the devastation of the Antarctica ice sheet is to can 70. I have to say one thing I found really interesting about that film is it's a film about a woman who finds intense sexual pleasure with a series of flabby, balding, jowly, middle-aged <laughs> men. Now, I've seen many French films like before, like this before, but they're usually directed by flabby, baldy, jowling, middle-aged men. <laughs> like so to see one directed yeah. by a woman was unusual. But there's, like there's the actor. Garrel, and that actor, that actor is just... I would have sex with him when I was 30. I mean, he, that actor is amazing. He's an absolute schlub, and he's just an amazing guy. Yeah, I love the Gorel too. I did too. That's my biggest pleasure of the festival yeah. to date. Tell, tell, us, tell us more about what you like. Consensus. Well, the Garel film is um, about this gentleman who's probably around 50. He's a philosophy professor in Paris, and he is having, as we learn in the first minute of the film, an intensely sexual affair with one of his students who we soon learn has moved in with him and very soon after his daughter who's the same age as his mistress moves in because she's just had an unfortunate breakup with her boyfriend and so the film follows the, the, the odd triangle that's formed um, the friendship between the two young women the triangulation the, the little jealousies of attention between a daughter and a mistress and um, well it's just Unlike so many movies we see in festivals, it seems to me practically every second of the film is essential. It's a 70-minute film. It's shot in beautiful black and white. On film. Absolutely. On 35-millimeter film. And it's interesting because so many of the films, especially those that we see in competition, in, in my opinion, hit us over the head over problems, social issues. And Garel, of course, those who don't like him, criticize the fact that it's, you know, 
French people in love and not in love, arguing in cafes and so on. But I find that because his film is so precise, every single thing that is in there speaks volumes. There's one shot of a couple walking on a street, and there's a homeless man there. Garel, if he's only making a 70-minute film, he's very intentionally made sure that we're aware of reality. The apartment that they live in is not the bourgeois, beautiful, double glass door apartments that we see in Benoit Jaco films and so on. I feel that there's a reality economically, politically. One of the few conversations in the film um, is about the Algerian war. He always refers back to either the resistance or Algeria. He's got that sense of context. And there's, a, in my eyes, a very beautiful moment of dialogue where the mistress comes home um, to her lover, this older man. She's been with her friends. He's like, well, what were you talking about? She says, the war. And he says, oh, which war? And she says, the next one. And then so what Amy is talking about being presaged by the Claire Denis film, for me, is there in just three sentences. So it's what I'm talking about, what really moves me about this film, among other things, just the, the essentialness of it. Every single thing just being very powerful. And the acting is magnificent. To consider that film amongst the last two he's made, I think he's at the point in his career where he's, if you take uh, Jealousy in the Shadow of Women and now Lover for a Day, he's really brought his style, I think, down to bare necessities. All the films are 70 minutes. They all, I mean, he always deals with similar themes, but he's really, I think, honed in on this one aspect of his uh, you know, sensibility in the last few years, which I find really interesting after slightly bigger films in the, in the 2000s. And I don't know if that's a concerted effort on his part, but it's, it stri strikes me as seeing these three films in the last few years. Another thing that's inspiring about Garel, just to young filmmakers and to, to filmgoers, is that it is a concerted effort. He realized, I, I guess Jealousy is from 2012, he realized, you know, I'm not going to get money to make two-hour films in Italy um, in scope with Ferraris. That, that gives a strange sense of him. It was actually a porch, and it's in The Wind Will... Uh, Le Vent de la Nuit, The Wind of the Night, I think, with Deneuve. He has a film where there's a red Porsche that you really want, um, and it works. Anyhow, he realized these kind of films were no longer going to work, and so he decided, I'm going to make very short films because it'll cost maybe roughly half the money, and it has actually just shown what an incredible artist he is. Two other films that I like a lot, probably my favorite film so far at the festival, is the Anya Tarda film. It's great. Faces and Places in <laughs> the English title. Another great translation. Visage, village, sounds better in French. literal, at least. <laughs> it is a documentary. It's not just Varder. It's Varder and J.R., a visual artist, uh, a French visual artist, has made this film, and they go on this journey around France. And it's basically a journey like Barton's other documentaries that deals a lot with farmers, working class, labor unions. And basically, JR's art is he makes these enormous... Varda takes the photographs sometimes. He takes the photographs, they make these enormous blow-ups of them, and they poster them on residential houses, on workplaces, and they monumentalize the people that everyone has ignored. Uh, but it's really the relationship between them, and it's a film about photography, cinema, and 
mortality because Varda makes it very clear that she's an 88-year-old woman, that she thinks about her own death a lot at this point, that she's having problems with her eyesight. Very interesting. You realize, just because of the scene that happens, that she must have all the lenses of her cameras uh, set with special lenses to her eyesight now, because with her naked eyes, she can't see at a distance and she can't see close up. And she shows you that whole thing in the most casual way in the film. So it's about seeing, recording, and having something that hap that continues after your death. I mean, what and she's it's immensely doing is, um, moving. Yeah, it's very moving. What she's doing now is very close to uh, Raymond Depardon, who yes. a few years ago made a film about traveling around France and basically filming things that he found, you know, as he found them, going out without a plan and just kind of discovering the world around him. And what's wonderful in the Varda film, and a kind of great life program for anyone who is kind of interested in, you know, trying to sort of ensure some kind of longevity for their imagination and, you know, and, and hunger to see, is, I mean, this constant sense of adventure that she decides, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to see what happens. And I mean, it does give a sense that things are planned to some degree, but it also suggests that there is a kind of improvisational approach, you know, it is a sort of flannery and she and JR go out and they find, they find France. And you can imagine sort of certain American directors, you know, going out and, I say this in inverted commas, finding America in that, um, the straight story way, and you would grind your teeth together. But the idea of finding France, because there isn't really a mythology of people looking for France, but they just go out and they find it, and, and it's there, and it's kind of, you really get a sense of sort of friendship. It's very sort of unifying, you know, there is the sense of some sort of solidarity is born yeah. between yeah. her and the people they encounter, and it's very, uh, it's very positive in that, you know, it's, it's, it's a great, humanist film. Yeah. And you don't realize until very much toward the end, or at least I didn't, because she photographs and JR photographs and the photographs they take then become the art. <laughs> There's France. We are in France. But, yeah. but they've been out with a film crew. And I didn't realize that till there's the subjective shot from her point of view, which you really can't see him when he takes his yeah. sunglasses out, off. And suddenly I said, well, who shot that? Yeah. And you realize that they've been traveling around all this time with a documentary crew yeah. who's been documenting them. And that the film is made of the images taken by multiple people. Mm -hmm. And the editing is incredibly fluid. Yeah. yeah, And without giving anything away, it ends with one of the most emotional scenes I can remember in yeah. you know, any yeah. movie, really. But uh, their last excursion together to find someone from Varda's past is yeah. handled so well. Yeah. It's safe, fine, it's unexpected, but it on, on, on that point, since you mentioned, yes. can we say here who that <laughs> yes. person is? Well, not, sure. Yes, um, we'll I think it is a little bit of a spoiler. Well, I, been I was about happy it. not to know when I saw it. but Well, let me say, and at this point I should shout, spoiler alert, <laughs> but the person in question is Jean-Luc Godard, and I'm going to say something which um, I'm sure will be considered heretical in many quarters, but I absolutely expected to find myself not just hating, but roundly mocking as a Lavisius' film, Redoutable, mm. which, you know, I mean, I saw his last film, it was preposterous, very mm -hmm. earnest, leaden film, The Search here, which, which um, absolutely got the thumbs down. 
And of course, everyone's seen those pictures of Louis Garrel as the young Godard with kind of fluffy, balding hair. And we all thought this is going to be preposterous. Now, I'm sure some people still found I do. completely... I do, too. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that. But Repugnant. I, yep. <laughs> I actually, I have to say, I wasn't expecting to like it at all. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm sure that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a Godardian myself. I'm sure that the absolute hardcore will regard me as a kind of crypto-revisionist running dog for uh, daring to like this. But... Um, it, it's fun. I mean, it takes sort of pastiche to an absurd degree to the extent that visually, in a way, there's nothing more on screen than a kind of series of riffs on Raoul Coutard's photography. But I found it certainly in some way, yeah, intrusive and exploitative. But on the other hand, it's a cartoon. I mean, it's a strip cartoon about uh, Godard's relationship with Anne Wiesemski who sort of disappears from the film. She's an absence in the film, but the weird thing is actually it's very much in keeping with Fyazemsky's own memoir, that she sort of becomes a background figure who's looking on. Um, I mean, Garel is made to be, you know, he, he makes his Godard absolutely sort of buffoonish. And yet it sort of strikes me that since we are all in the habit of, you know, granting Godard status as a sort of absolute godhead, it probably isn't that bad to take the piss out of him for once. And uh, I found it completely against my better judgment. I found it sort of genuinely charming and, and you know, very, very lively. This is so English of you, <laughs> This is the most English position you've ever taken. <laughs> Um, I, I sort of don't really like to regard myself as English I these know, days. I, I prefer to say, prefer to say half Russian. <laughs> uh, I don't like to regard myself as American these days either. Um, I thought it was so nothing that I didn't even walk out because that would be making too much of a statement about something that was absolutely bland and meaningless and badly shot and uninteresting and basically stupid but <laughs> no, I don't like the movie but it's kind of interesting to see a filmmaker who obviously does not like post 68 Godard make a film that essentially if you never saw if you didn't know anything about Godard you would think his career ended when the movie ends basically he has this kind of like coming to Jesus moment where he's setting aside his you know, artistic vision or whatever, and almost literally gets killed off, but basically has to but you know. No, I mean, in that sense, I kind of found it a kind of a secretly violent film against Godard, the way it erases that part of his history, and yeah. the way it goes along with him just being a buffoon. Basically, my idea of the movie, the only thing I saw them happening over and over again was, oh, Godard, why can't you have a little fun? You know, and it was that gag like a hundred times, you know. And a great running gag about him breaking his glasses, which I just, I just, it's not funny. <laughs> That's <laughs> part of the problem for me. Um, I know, I was just waiting the for the sound effect. actually not funny. Yeah. And who is this terrible actress who looked like, not like any of either of the she two looked like Chantal Goya. No, she, no, she yeah. looked like, like, like Macho Merrill yeah. in The Married Woman. She had the hair. Well, she certainly doesn't look like, like that. And yeah. It's Stacey Martin, who's actually a, a talented and interesting French-English actress who is in Nymphomaniac. She's the younger Nymphomaniac in that right. film. But it's just, it's terrible casting and because Anne Zemsky, there's some kind of interesting erotic charge about that woman. If you look at Oazal Baltazar, there's something... 
Sure, that maybe has something to do with an erotic charge, but I was thinking more of her face in films like La Chinoise and Oazar Balthazar. She has a very odd mouth and she just, there's something very interesting about her. Stacey Martin is objectively a beautiful young woman, but there's just, she's very bland in this film and all she has to do in the film is just be the poor little rich girl whose husband isn't paying attention to her. And I would like to think that Anne Yazemski was a much more interesting person at that time. And even if she wasn't, I'd rather watch a film about someone who was more interesting than just this bland girl who's nude in every other shot because that's what Hazanovicius thinks a Godard film would be like. It, it also seems to have impressed uh, Gilles Jacob, who um, tweeted a naked picture of her with a, a caption about Les Delicieuses, Stacey Martin. Yeah, uh, no, no, it's true. But actually, you know, the thing about the book, I mean, that's the problem, that he there's a real discrepancy between her memoirs, uh, you know, in which the whole point is that she is a very acute, observing presence. I mean, she later became a novelist and a memoirist, and certainly you get a different time of Yasemsky. Well, certainly what you don't get in Stacey Martin, who I do find a rather kind of insipid screen presence in general, is you don't get that sort of sense of defiance that you have in Fiasemsky, you know, in which... You know, you would think of her looking at the screen in La Chinoise, and she is. She is, you know, the face of youth at that time, and there is something, you know, maybe that look of defiance is, is lost now. Uh, maybe it's the wrong generation. Could we talk about the look of defiance and how many people have seen Sean Baker's film? I haven't seen it yet. Um, haven't yet. Yeah, well, I have. <laughs> and it's really the best thing here, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, except for the Varder and, and Claire Denis and Sean Baker. Sean Baker's film is a really audacious, risky film, and I've told everyone, even if you have dozens of appointments and you think this is going nowhere, don't leave because it is a great structure that just hits a note and stays and stays and stays till at the end it pays off in a way that it wouldn't have if he hadn't done this. Uh, it's basically these people in a $35 a night motel on the outskirts of Disney World in Florida basically homeless people, a lot of them kids living with single moms, and the kids just run around and yell and make noise all the time and drive you crazy and drive everyone crazy, and they're on the move all the time, and the mothers can barely hold it together, and one mother can't hold it together to pay the rent, and that's what it's about. And there's Willem Dafoe playing a part you've never seen Willem Dafoe play, which is just a kind of ordinary, middle-of-the-road, Midwestern guy, probably has military background, who's trying to manage this huge motel with all these people on uh, welfare. It's absolutely great. I've never seen anything remotely like it. You were a big fan of Tangerine. I am a big fan of Tangerine, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting also to see that film here somehow, I don't know. Uh, it's not, we should say, it's not in competition. It's in uh, the director's fortnight. Right. Um, 
there's another film I liked, which I didn't expect to uh, so much, which is uh, Yorgos Lantimos's film this morning, Killing of a Sacred Deer, which puzzled me because I thought Dogtooth was, you know, one of the most extraordinary films of recent years, you know, in terms of what he's doing with language and he created an acting style. And then by the time of his follow-up film, Alps, that had immediately sort of ossified as a, as a shtick and it very much become mannerism. And I felt I couldn't watch his films again. And I saw The Lobster, and I was one of the few people here, I think, who wasn't crazy about it at like all. It but somehow, the new film, in a way, it's like a conventional film. Uh, it could almost be a Hollywood home invasion movie, given the Lantimos twist. It's about a, a family, um, a surgeon, an ophthalmologist, and their kids. And there's a strange young man hovering on the outside who has some sort of connection with the father. And you think, well, what's going on? Is he really his son? Or uh, is he having an affair with the boy's mother, who's very funnily played by... Alicia Silverstone in a very kind of droll scene. And then something kind of very weird and disturbing and either supernatural or metaphysical happens and you think, what the hell is going on? And you realise that what he's doing is adapting a Greek classical myth and sort of shoehorning it in, and I think making a deliberately uncomfortable not-quite-fit into this modern milieu he creates... And I found it very unsettling. I mean, it's very, it's very controlled. It's very entertaining. There are still those peculiar mannerisms he has with language which detach you from it, make it very unsettling. You know, people have very kind of long, very self-consciously banal conversations about wristwatches. And again, you know, there is a mannerism to it. I'm not entirely sure that his acting style has adapted itself to the English language. I mean, it worked very well in Greek and Dogtooth. Um, I'm not sure it did in Alps, but there is something very distinctive about it. You know, I mean, here is someone... I'm not sure I would ever want to see it again, but here is someone with a peculiar voice that he's found a variation on. Yeah, I, I somehow just didn't connect with it at, at, at all. I just, I just felt like it was this... For me, it still felt kind of ossified, like the, the, the previous ones, and it felt like basically an art horror film because it had all the beats of it, it had the music of it, it almost sounded like it was, you know, Penderecki well, on the Ligeti and Ligeti and Safari and Bagdalina. Yeah, that's that's so very Kubrickian. And and then I couldn't tell if he was just making fun of the way he's just so happy to just inflict cruelty on, on the characters because the way they introduce what's going to happen like the plan for the second half is a character just like listing the things that are going to happen and he says it in such a rushed way it could have been like an yeah. unwritten it's like it's like basically looks it's 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 a lines of dialogue that read like unwritten screenplay it's so weird he says this is going to happen to this this is going to happen to this and at that point I just thought well <laughs> And one of the things that's going to happen is a child bleeding from the eyes. Like, just so we can give people an idea of what type of world we're embarking into. Yeah. And then everyone's been directed to speak in the most affectless manner. Uh, and I just... Anyone see Bruno de I yes, it's absolutely peculiar. What, what do people make of it? I didn't that's see my favorite. It. That's film. why I'm asking. <laughs> really? Yes. Uh-huh. You want to um, out the defense yeah. before the attack? Um, well, I mean, it's... A musical about the childhood of uh, Joan of Arc, made in the Dumont style, or recent Dumont style, which is semi-more comedic, or much more. Basically, it's a musical set to contemporary, I don't know, everything from orchestral pop to death metal, um, and 
they play out this tale of her coming to the realization of her lot in life or the course she's going to take, and then it essentially sets her on that course. That's essentially the whole movie. But I think it works. I like Slackway from last year, but I think it works uh, a little bit better than that. It's a little more compact and, uh, you know, doesn't wear on <laughs> quite as much. But uh, I don't know, it rem- reminded me of everything from uh, Moses and Aaron, the Straub who they filmed, to... Uh, Monty Python, so it, it runs the gamut, and I, yeah, I found it really sort of incredible. It definitely follows in Dumont's recent humorous vein, but it also needs to be said that there's a a very serious theological side to it, though Dumont is, is not himself a believer. The The text is from Charles Peggy's play about the young Joan of Arc, so it's Joan of Arc at roughly 8 and 11, as she's deciding to go off and save France from England. And one of the things that surprised me about the film is that it takes place in an extremely limited territory. You know, I I knew it was a Joan of Arc film, so I kind of imagined that I would see castles and people riding. And in fact, when this film takes place, she's a shepherdess, and it really just happens in these dunes near the sea that we never see the sea. Um, It's very much the territory that Dumont always films in. And, And we barely budge from there. It's just the very, very young Jeanne and then the pre-adolescent or just adolescent Jeanne receiving visits from different people and making up her mind. And, and angels. And, and angels. And, and twin nuns. And I mean, the, the kind of signature camera move for, or camera position for the film is above Jeanne, her looking up at the camera so that she's literally addressing the heavens. And yeah, that might sound scary, but it's it's actually pretty extraordinary in my opinion. Though I would never venture to say that I fully understand what's going on no, at first viewing. It is definitely extraordinary. I have problems with Bruno Dumont. I mean, I'm, I'm on and off all the time with him. I thought his first film, La Vie de Jésus, was wonderful. I thought his second film, L'Humanité, was completely indigestible. And then it was a while before I really liked one again. And then something clicked with Or Satan. And I have to say that Camille Claudel, I think, is just sort of a massive, very, very resonant you know, generally a sort of a spiritual film, although as, as you say, he is not, he's not religious, but he has very much a sense of the religious and a sense of finding extraordinary spiritual simplicity, resonance in a very simple image. Um, when he moved into comedy, uh, Petit Cancan, I thought, was marvellous. It's, it's a really kind of miraculously funny film. Uh, and yet Slack Bay just completely misfired for me. And um, I'm afraid this one did too. I mean, the first five minutes, I was thinking, gosh, this is extraordinary. He's found the sublime again. There's an extraordinary sequence where the young Jeannette is coming towards the camera, singing a sort of hymn, uh, a cappella, and it's the most wonderful thing. And it's really very, very touching. Then when the music comes in, and, and, you know, I mean, I just found the music really gratingly ugly most of the time, uh, except for a few moments. But not, not just ugly, I mean, I found it actually oppressive. And, you know, I've been, I've been a, a lover of much ugly music in my time, God knows. But I just found this very, very hard. I, I didn't have a problem with the fact that the cast could really dance or sing, and this is the point, that they are very much real people, you know, he's not looking for kind of 
you know, child stars. But I found the, you know, the jokes and the very much the kind of shimmying nuns uh, a la Monty Python. And some, there is some sort of genuine kind of metal headbanging. There's a lot of hair being thrown around. So I was with it for, for the first five minutes, ten minutes. Then I, found, I started to find it really kind of grating on me. And it, it, I wanted it to end. I kept looking at my watch and thinking, hmm, shouldn't they be burning her at some point? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I absolutely... I mean, I think visually it's absolutely beautiful. Um, I, I will watch anything Bruno Dumont does. Um, I was absolutely open to the possibilities of this one, and I just couldn't go with it at all. So I sort of want to say, I kind of like the earlier miserable. <laughs> Can you try and have less fun, Bruno? In a way, we're uh, Oksha and the Square. Those yeah. are the ones that really polarise people, yeah, so maybe we should yeah. do well as... Oksha and the Square are also yeah. loveless. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen Oja and Loveless. I'm sorry to I think Oja is wonderful. I think it's terrific. I and that's not only because I don't eat meat. And as he said yesterday in the roundtable, he eats less meat than he did before making this film. But it's impossible to be a vegetarian in Korea. But what the film is against is factory farming. It's really a film about people's relationship to one another and to animals under capitalism. And it is just a scathing critique of that and that he fully intended the thing that everyone is upset about, this change of tone from what seems like a combination of a children's movie, a girl and her very large animal, and then this incredibly broad satire of uh, capitalist power, which is not very broad in the age of Donald Trump, as a matter of fact, he's pretty mild, that then shows you what is really going on underneath it. And everyone is upset about that change of register in the film, which I think it's great and which he fully intended. Can I say I found Okja gratingly strident? I mean, I thought the uh, kind of anti-corporate humour was completely off. I just kept thinking how Joe Dante used to do it in Small Soldiers with, with kind of real economy and elegance. Um, but the, here's one thing he does, is that he has these kind of monstrous corporate figures played by the, the CEO played by Tilda Swinton, who is okay, but she's pushing her register a bit towards, you know, towards the kind of the brash in a way that doesn't work here for me. And Jake Gyllenhaal, who is the kind of TV vet clown figurehead and is kind of, I, I think it's one of the most horrible performances I've ever seen. It, it's, it's kind of, someone says to him, do you have to do all that whining and shrieking? And I thought, yes, do you have to do all that whining and shrieking? It's really not funny. But there's a moment in the film at which there's a kind of on stage presentation and there are banners with images of the Swinton and Jill and Howell characters and in these images they're kind of gurning horribly you know in these images there are kind of hideous grimaces and you thought well okay the characters might do that but to actually put up banners of them doing that as well where in fact they might just be you know the corporate thing to do would be to show them smiling radiantly it just, I just struck me as misjudged and, and horrible and ugly. And I just was thinking of a million ways in which I could have imagined the tone and that change of tone.
just working better. I mean, the CGI in the film is extraordinary. It's it's kind of miraculous, but and the girl's miraculous, and she's extraordinary too. And I, you know, I, but and I love Bong Joon Ho's films, and this one I was just very disappointed by. Um, I don't know if you'd like to talk about the other film, which really polarised people, which I still think is the best thing in competition, which is The Square. Well, I I strongly disagree. Unfortunately, I the square was going to be in my list of films that angered me until we decided not to talk about movies we didn't like. I mean, I, I class it in, for lack of a a more pithy term, the the cinema of cruelty, of of mastery, of hitting you over the head. I mean, Jonathan, you did say that it gets its point across about the critique of contemporary art quickly and and overdoes it, but I feel like that about the entire film. What what is Ruben Ostland trying to say? It just seems so thick to me, you know. So we see a bunch of people coming out of a subway all looking at their iPhones. Which is also one of the cliches of this festival, unfortunately. I've seen this scene in at least three films. You know, actually, I use my iPhone a lot. I do not feel morally <laughs> vacant for that reason. You're one of the lost souls. Yeah. <laughs> I have mixed feelings about The Square. I mean, I think it's really sharply written. I found it very funny at times, but I just generally found it kind of shaggy and in a weird way kind of reactionary. Mm-hmm. Its stance on art and, and the place of appreciation of art or even thinking about it or trying to say something about it. While some of it's kind of funny, it's always funny to poke fun at, like, gallery speak. Like, it's such an easy target. It's, an easy it's target. a film of easy targets. Yeah, like exactly. the iPhone, like the art world. And I don't have a heavy investment in contemporary art, but I was offended for my friends who are involved in the art world. It's just so easy. And he does it ad infinitum. The film starts with this smarmy Swedish contemporary art museum director being interviewed by an American journalist played by Elizabeth Moss, who may be arguably the only good thing in the film from my point of view. Anyhow, she's interviewing him. She asks him one question. He answers the question, and then she's like, I didn't understand something about your press release. Can I read it to you? And she reads him five sentences in art speak, which are incomprehensible and in this setting hilarious. And everything that needs to be said about the contemporary art world and its bullshit is said in that moment and his response. And then we get two hours and 20 minutes of film (laughs) about that among other things. And I just like, I don't need to be hit over the head with these kind of things. And of course he mixes in, you know, critique about how we deal with homeless people. And I just, it it actually grosses me out. Yeah. The comedy is more broad. I think that's one of the issues with it, which I've mixed on the film, but compared to his other films, this feels like, yeah, he's taking easy targets, easy shots at these things, but visually and is amazing, I think. And, uh, Elizabeth Moss is an aspect I wasn't expecting or didn't know what to think going in and she and ended, ended up being quite good Yeah, there's a terrifying scene in it as well an extended scene in which a performance artist played by Terry Notary who specializes in CGI motion, perf- capture. motion capture apes he does a sort of ape performance for a, um, a gala night crowd and you know again it is an obvious point that's being made but it's made with such you know so kind of relentlessly and uncomfortably it is too long I mean it's it's more like the rectangle but um, <laughs> I think um, you know if it's cut a bit which seems like it was cut um, 20 minutes I yeah, think, for this. yeah well, it was supposed to be two <laughs> hours and 40 initially more, you yeah, know, I think yeah. I think there is a more concise film in there and some of the cruder points being made you know, about what not, which I can absolutely see and it does feel to me like hold on this rather plays into what people were saying about 
when the Tate in London bought Carl Andre's bricks in the right. 70s and all the tabloids went to pieces. I kind of feel this film doesn't really go beyond that in some ways, but, you know, it's got other things to say. And um, you know, I, I just don't feel it goes much deeper with any of the other things that it has to say. And the sequence that you refer to with this performance art attack on a bunch of rich art patrons, I read today was seven minutes long. I genuinely thought it was 20 minutes long. It's relentless is indeed the operative word. And it's just, the point is clear. People don't stand up and help each other. And it just goes on and on and on for no better reason than to make us uncomfortable. I, I, it's not what I'm looking for actually in cinema. You could feel the, I think the air go out of the audience's uh, enjoyment of the film during that scene. And then I think it struggles to get that back, sympathy back for even if you were on board with the film. Because in the first 30, 45 minutes, I thought we were going to look, we were watching like a prize winner. It seemed a very ambitious film and an expansion of Austin's ideas from other films. But uh, yeah, once that scene hit, which is yeah, almost hour and 45 minutes in, it just seemed to lose a lot of energy. Yeah, it's funny how initial bold steps can seem confident and then later yeah. <laughs> they're not. What did people make of the Hanukkah? Because it sort of left me completely cold, it. really. I was also kind of cool on it. It kind of played like a greatest hits of his films. I feel like I got back to what I kind of like cachet in other early 2000s films. Yeah, exactly. It, it was sort of interesting to me when it was cryptic in the first uh, 30 minutes and trying to piece together the narrative and the characters. But eventually, once you figure out who these people are and how they're connected, I found it way less interesting. And then the happy end was uh, not uh, was satisfying at all. Yeah. I guess he doesn't like cell phones. I guess not. <laughs> Yeah, the Haneke, I mean, yeah, I guess I was moved a little bit by it. I actually felt there was some germ of an actual family dynamic being portrayed there. What I thought was interesting is, and sort of true, a portrayal of family where you have people who are very unstable unstable, and people who are hyper-competent in the same family, which I think is a kind of true, <laughs> as there's a truth to that. There's, there's a corollary, correlative in the real world, unlike many Hanukkah films. That moved me for a while. And, and then at the end, it's just the final shot. It's just like this panicky turd on the Sunday at the end. You know, it's just like you had to do this one final thing. And the opening definitely is, I can, you can say the opening, which is like five minutes through, through a uh, cell phone, just observing someone. So it's like an encapsulation of like, with the latest technology uh, of, of various Hanukkah uh, themes. Yeah, it's, it's, it was like a handful of good performances, but... Uh, I just felt him kind of ossified again. It feels like a, it feels like a, a good word. And actually, for the first time, I think in any film I can remember, I suddenly felt that Isabelle Huppert was there as a kind of reassuring presence. <laughs> and you know, you felt kind of comfortable, to, you know, with her being there. And uh, that's not really what you hope for. From her, certainly not in a Hanukkah film. What about Loveless? Maybe we can quickly do that. I thought it was pretty dreadful. Just unremittingly dark and bleak in such a self-conscious way that it almost becomes humorous by halfway through the film. I was off board pretty pretty fast. I knew, I knew within 15 minutes it wasn't going to have much redeeming value to it. I don't know what anyone else thought here, but I didn't see it. Well, it's another film about uh, what uh, mobile phones are doing to us, and I, I almost felt all the way through... It should be a whole sidebar section. Yeah, you know, all the way through, I, I, I felt he, he might as well have just been kind of flashing up a sign on screen saying, moral vacancy, moral vacancy. <laughs> I mean, I do feel that it's a very moralising film, 
there is one interesting point in it, uh, uh, which is apparently based on uh, fact. It's the idea that um, if uh, in Russia, if you work for certain companies and you're divorced or you divorce, then you may lose your job. Uh, according to Sergei said, this is not unknown. And I thought, gosh, well, that's interesting. But there is this sense of, you know, here are all these people and they have no values whatsoever and they're completely abandoning their child and the child cries. And, you know, there is no subtext or subtlety there. And I, I felt that the monumentalism of his work, I, I thought Leviathan was an absolutely extraordinary film and certainly, you know, a very uh, bold case statement. Uh, again, you know, not so much subtlety, but it had a genuine poetry, whereas the poetry, visual poetry here felt somehow off the peg, you know, and it starts with a boy finding a bit of um, red and white tape from a kind of police scene. You don't know what's happened there. And at the end, the tape is still blowing in the tree, and uh, you think, what the hell has gone on? It, and someone is walking on an exercise uh, walker walking in place. outside. <laughs> well, yeah, walking in place outside on the balcony when they could be walking in the park yeah. in the great Russian nature. So I, With I a big a... sweatshirt that says Russia. Yeah, right and I thought, come <laughs> on, you know, give, give these people a, a break or, you know, find something more subtle to say about them. No, I mean, it struck me as very disappointingly heavy-handed. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the subtlest thing about it for me in the first half hour is just the way the structure of the story at first was used to show the kid just disappearing from their minds, which is that you just realize after about 20 minutes that they haven't cut back to him at all. And I mean, and that actually worked for me. And then then, then the underlining and, and, and highlighting began uh, after that. Um, I, there's still a couple films I'm wondering what people thought about, like Wonderstruck or 120 BPM. Oh yeah, Wonderstruck, um, that's too bad Amy, actually really moved me to my surprise. So the film is um, initially two stories about one set in 1927, a young deaf girl who basically runs away from home in New Jersey and goes to New York City looking for her brother and what happens to her in New York. And then uh, a young boy in initially Minnesota, Gunflint, Minnesota, in 1977, and he goes deaf and winds up going to New York as well on his own, and it's about the connection between these two kids' stories. And it's based on a children's book or a young adult yeah, book. Yeah, it's by the same guy who wrote the did Hugo Gray, yeah. And, and did the screenplay for this. Yeah, yeah. and... Um, the movie, I think, is intended for young adults. I'm, I'm not sure, but I found myself tremendously moved from start to finish, and I don't think it had anything or much to do with the story, which is basically quite sentimental, but I just found the craft really powerful. And as we all know, Todd Haynes is someone who's always paid tribute to his masters, to his admirations, to his loves, and here it's silent cinema and some kind of moments where he just sparks off into experimental collage and I felt like it was a filmmaker operating at full fire and I found it really beautiful. Yeah, I can unironically say that it was heartwarming 
for me. I, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm you know, um, glad to hear that. What was the other? Oh, 120 beats per minute. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a very conventional film in some ways. Uh, this is about ACT UP in France, and it's an ensemble piece. The cast is astonishing. I mean, it's some of the best, most kind of relaxed and natural ensemble acting that I've seen, and I think it would be a great thing if, uh, you know, the Best Actor Award went to the whole cast because mm. they're all terrific. The only really known face is uh, Adele Enel, who, you know, kind of ought to have a sort of card to hand out saying, you know, angry woman for hire because she's always kind of furious in most of her films, but she's yeah. always very, very good. And the young guy called Nahuel Perez Biscaya, who's worked with Benoit Jaco, and he is fantastic. He's great. Uh, as um, half of the central gay couple. I mean, dramatically, it's very conventional. It kind of hits a lot of the expected beats, and there are a lot of scenes, long scenes of kind of meetings. But the, the meetings are very plausible because they have a particular protocol, a particular very curious touches, like people aren't allowed to clap, they have to snap their fingers. And you become aware of all these differences about strategy and politics and ideology. And actually it's quite interesting watching it alongside the film about Godard in 68 and, and those political meetings, the students' political meetings in 68, which are kind of sent up in a kind of cartoonish way. But here, you know, you really, there is something very kind of real about it and it does have a very strong docudrama power that then in the end kind of boils down to more intimate emotional story I don't think it's a groundbreaking film in any way but I just found it really admirable and yeah you know a proper statement it's certainly not something that excites me as cinema but um, something that drove home to me how a film about ACT UP France and about a relationship between two men is still very important today was that when I watched it in a press screening the woman sitting next to me during the first rather explicit gay sex scene chose to hide her face behind her hands and then later in the film was seen putting her face between her knees so that she wouldn't see the abomination on the screen apparently so that was rough I, I went into the film with very high expectations because I had liked the director as Romain Campillo and I actually found his previous film, Eastern Boys, very promising. And the direction of that film was very cinematic, very controlled. He made a great deal out of a relatively restrained space in that film. So, I, And I'm very interested in the history of ACT UP, particularly since I saw David French's documentary, How to Survive the Plague, about the American ACT UP. So... I went in really hoping that this would be kind of a very important story because as far as I'm concerned, these were true heroes of the era that we lived, um, most of us lived through in the 80s and 90s and that it would be a great movie. It, it is not that, as Jonathan described, but I, I think it's an important movie and it's exciting that people here seem to be very into it and I, I think it might strike gold or something and also it, it's really interesting to watch alongside the Anas Vada film because they're both films about giving ordinary people their heroic status which you know maybe not everyone in the world not, not all ordinary people deserve but it certainly shows that actually we should be celebrating ordinary people rather than these kind of mythical and actually the mythical and extremely preposterous figures that we're kind of forced to read about every day. It's a very, you know, profoundly democratic film. 
fine film, maybe an important film, but not the most exciting uh, film I've seen here yet. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I, I should say, very disappointingly, the film that uh, Compio co-wrote with Laurent Conte, Conte's film, they, they, uh, I think they pretty much always write together. Yeah, they're a, a new they're film, a team, I think. L'Atelier, kind of disappointing. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I, was kind of, I found it kind of interesting, but um, maybe we can pick it up in the next session, but thanks all of you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>